Good morning, good evening, and welcome back to the Dayson Digest. My name is Ray Perez, one of the Infectious Disease Fellows working with the Dayson Network, and we are back for episode 64 of the podcast, and man, am I excited about our co-host today. Uh, you know him, you love him, the medical director of Diacon, the man, one of the men who started it all, Dev Anderson. Uh, thank you for joining us on the pod today. Hi, Ray. Hi, everyone. Happy to be here. Uh, today we are uh, diving in to an article that many of you are likely aware of. It's one of the most recent updates to the Shea Compendium. Specifically, it is the Strategies to Prevent Surgical Site Infections in Acute Care Hospitals, a 2022 update um, by Michael Calderwood and Dr. Anderson himself as the co-lead authors. This was published in Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology itchy for those of us who know and love it, uh, just this past March. And this document represents a new joint practice recommendation from the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America, Shea, the IDSA, and APIC, the Association for Professionals in Infection Control. Um, so as I mentioned, the latest and greatest coming out of the updates to the compendium that have slowly been rolling out um, in itchy over the last year. Um, so to set the stage, as many of you all are aware, and it's been a topic on the podcast for uh, several episodes recently, surgical site infections continue to be an incredibly important issue for patients across the United States. If we look at our 2021 NHSN data, there were over 21,000 uh, SSIs report reported from 2.7 million procedures. And, you know, in this paper, they get into estimating that as many as 60% of these SSIs are preventable using evidence-based guidelines. While a number of different uh, guideline documents exist, this represents the first update to the Shea Compendium since 2014, so almost a decade of practice that um, has uh, occurred since then, and it will likely be a cornerstone of practice recommendations for years to come. So, Deb, I'm really excited to get your perspective on this as you were, you know, essential in, in helping bring this document to be. And just to, I think, start out, you know, I think that's a really stunning number to think about an estimated 60% of SSIs are preventable using evidence-based guidelines. Now, presumably, a lot of that data is with techniques that we already know about and have discussed in previous guidelines. And I feel like that's been a trend I've noticed at ID Week this year at Shea. It's really moving, not talking, not just about all the cool advances in our basic science and our technologies, but about the implementation science. Right. Like right. we know a lot of the things that we need to do, but how do we actually make them happen? So I'm curious to get your perspective. You know, where do you think the bulk of these opportunities lie in these preventable infections? You know, what, what parts of this do you think are where we should be focusing our implementation efforts? Yeah, it's a great question. It really is a good place to start. Um, you know, when we think about surgical site infections in general, it's not that the frequent that the outcome is frequent. It's just we do so many procedures that anything that happens one percent of the time, but you you make it, you know, given a chance to do so twenty one million times, you end up with a pretty good number of of bad outcomes here. Um, and but interestingly, even with a small number like that, you know, about one percent, there really is, we believe, still opportunity for improvement. Now, this most recent version of the compendium document has expanded essential practices. And as you see, as your as your listeners will see when they read the document itself, we have now 19 different recommendations that are in what we call now essential practices. I think they were called something like basic practices in the last iteration. 
So there is a growing evidence base for the different things that we should do to prevent these infections. And that then translates into, again, a number of additional types of recommendations. But I don't think anything, even though they, there may be new things that are labeled as essential practices, I think those that have been working in this field for some time as they read these don't really see anything that's, you know, groundbreaking, the newest thing that, that we've ever, you know, encountered when it comes to surgical site infections uh, and prevention. I think what you're seeing is more nuanced and detailed recommendations being specific about things like, sure, you know, skin prep is important, but also vaginal prep is important for certain types of GI. And so that's now an ex explicit type of recommendation. You know, decolonization was previously one of the maybe you do it type of recommendations. And as evidence has grown, it's now one of the essential practices for at least two different types of surgical types, right? And so there's nothing that's, I don't think, earth shatteringly new here. So that then turns to the issue you were just raising. You know, we've known for some time, maybe we continue to improve, how, you know, the details we're, we're applying some of these recommendations, but we've known some time what the really key and important interventions are to decrease our risk of surgical site infection. And the reality is even now, we still don't implement those very well. And to turn your listeners to another paper that our group has, has published with Art Baker as our senior author, we actually looked at uh, different types of surveillance strategies to identify increases in surgical site infection. And one of the key takeaways from that paper was that when you looked at the evidence-based practices when SSIs occurred, over 99% of the time, we could find that one of our key eight recommendations for preventing infections did not occur, was not documented. 95% of the time, two out of eight of our evidence-based, highest evidence-based practices were not implemented and bad outcomes happened. And so we want to continue to grow our evidence base. We want to have new interventions. We want to come up with the newest and greatest thing. But the reality as we sit here today is we really do need to focus on implementation and improvement of um, you know, use of the, what we know to work. Maybe to give you one last example, and I think we'll get into this a little bit later, one of the detailed now recommendations we have in our essential practices is related to bowel prep for colon procedures. It was in the subtext even back in 2014, but as the evidence continued to grow, and we're talking about meta-analyses with like 50 randomized controlled trials out there at this point, all four evidence, you know, all four guidelines, you know, ACS, CDC, WHO, IDSA slash SHEA say you should do this. We found that colon prep in our community hospitals uh, occurred less than 30% of the time. And so key evidence-based strategy, very rarely being used. And so part of that background then led to this now being elevated uh, up to one of our key recommendations or essential practices as we've labeled them here. Awesome. And I think it's a really important point to just think about. I think we often get spun up in the desire to innovate and do something new and try to like find the next best thing. But, you know, really a lot of the time, the best thing to do is take a breath, slow down and look at what we're doing and how can we just do that better? That's right. Yeah, totally agree. So to, you know, not cut yourself too short, you know, you have done a lot of, put a lot of thought and effort into thinking about how to organize this information and really elevate, as you're saying, some points that have really been more buried in the subtext. Mm -hmm. um, and so are, what do you think are some of the changes that 
are most profound and, and things you want to draw people's attention to that, hey, we really wanted to make sure we elevated yeah. this and we think this was an essential thing that got buried. I think there are a handful of those. Um, I think, you know, we have your standard, use the right antimicrobial prophylactic agent. We like, you know, use it at the right time. But one of the things we keyed in on specifically in this uh, version of our guidelines was that Again, it's long been the case. It's just been a really slow venture to get to the point where we finally want to say, once the incision is closed, stop the antimicrobial prophylactic agent. And so now we have that as a specific part of our recommendations here. And so that would be an example of one. We've already talked about elevating the use of, of oral antibiotics as part of your bowel prep prior to elective colorectal procedures as one of our key recommendations. We get into decolonization has been elevated from, uh, as we mentioned, has been elevated from one of the, you know, do it if you've got problems types of recommendations to now recommend it for orthopedic and cardiothoracic procedures in particular. And we get into other issues related to wound lavage, uh, which previously was not on our list. If there's anything that might be, you know, kind of new, frankly, that would be one that made its way onto this based on, again, reasonable randomized control trial data, uh, but now considered part of our essential practices. Maybe the last one to add here, because you know, you can imagine this topic, man, I can go on and on. I know you only have <laughs> a limited amount of time. You want to have uh, this podcast last so we can keep our listeners here. Uh, the only other one I might specifically call out is with each iteration of the compendium, this is the third version of it, the target glucose level in the post-operative setting has continued to be refined, was 200 originally, and it was 180 in 2014. And then now we're all the way down to a range, not just a top level, but this Goldilocks zone, if you will, 110 to 150 is now a target glucose level for probably our larger, more you know, but elective surgical procedures. A lot of great important topics to bring to the forefront. Uh, so thanks for bringing the highlight to all of that. But at the end of the day, this is the Dason Digest. And so <laughs> let's, I do want to focus in a little more on this topic that's going to be near and dear to the hearts of our listeners, and that's antimicrobial prophylaxis uh, and some of the uh, specific recommendations that you make. And, and really saying at the time of closure to stop antibiotics was a big one and, and being very explicit about the use of particular antimicrobials uh, were just some of the many things that were highlighted in this update. And so I'm curious, because I know there's, I feel like we covered this topic uh, recently on the podcast with a large database review on, on how often, and again, looking at data that we, recommendations we knew about, but challenges in their implementation, uh, and a lot of emotion, I think, that often gets wrapped around just trying to protect patients and right. feeling like more is better. Right. So uh, I guess just to start, was this a subject of contention? Is, yeah. Uh, this was being discussed as making this that explicit? Um, it's a good question. And a little bit of contention, I think, certainly some discussion to be had, because I think our guideline ultimately would be the first to, to kind of draw that line in the sand and continue to narrow down that duration from that 24-hour mark that was in all of the guidelines before to now really talk, speaking to the evidence that exists. And the evidence is that there is no additional risk prevention with ongoing antibiotics after closure. And there's a meta-analysis uh, that we've quoted for a long time now. You know, I believe it's in the like 25-ish types of randomized trials that have really just shown no benefit. 
So that has been there for a while, and yet we were still having these arguments about, well, 24 hours, there are various society guidelines that say otherwise. There were the prior skip guidelines for people that have been working in this area for a while, will be familiar with. And essentially, in some ways, that was a compromise. The 24 hours was a compromise. That's not evidence-based. And so with ongoing time, the additional data we've now accrued is in the safety zone. And not, okay, it's one thing to say, you know, I can't, I don't think you're getting any additional benefit out of all this. And they can argue one way or the other. Now I can say, I don't think you're getting an additional benefit out of this. And I, you're putting your patient at harm. And we've got more definitive data to support part two of that argument than we had 10 years ago when we wrote the compendium in 2014. And so it was that evidence, that safety-related safety outcomes, AKI, C. diff, antimicrobial resistance, that finally tipped the scales. And to that point, I feel like one of the big villains that often comes out uh, in that discussion is vancomycin. Oh, yes. Uh, another point that you make very explicit in these update recommendations are recommending against routinely including vancomycin for prophylaxis. And a lot of discussion on, you know, should we just, if you do need to use vancomycin, should we just do that alone? Or should that still be in combination with spazolin? Yeah. And, you know, looking through this, it seems like that was honestly still, you came down the side of recommending just one agent, but it seems like a tough one since there's been some conflicting data about combination therapy and its role. Right. You know, there are, uh, vancomycin rears its head in a few places in these guidelines, and I think one of the things to definitely call your listeners to here is the use of the word routine. We do not recommend the routine use of vancomycin when it comes to which agents we're using for antimicrobial prophylaxis. We're not saying never. We do think that there will be some examples and times where something like a vancomycin will be useful. Now, as a quick aside, this is the Dayson. Uh, podcast, we're not saying, you know, we really want to chip away at the idea of using vancomycin when there's allergy as the primary rationale, because we all know that's bogus 90 plus percent of the time. And so hopefully we, you know, there's a, some comments about, uh, you know, allergy and really trying to better determine what kind of allergies we're really talking about. Don't use vancomycin if you have a quote unquote, you know, beta lactam allergy. Do your best to try and tease out whether that really is true. And if it's just penicillin allergy that from when they were a kid, it seems to me these days, we just give them cefazolin anyway, and everybody does fine. So what we're really trying to carve off here are those examples where someone has a prior history of MRSA infection, or that we can explicitly identify as a high risk for MRSA infection. And in that setting, think that there can be some additional benefit from vancomycin. Now, this issue of combination versus individual use of vancomycin is where you start to, re to, to veer into some evidence-free zones. And I'd say the consensus of the authors on this list, and I want to say there's some comment to this in the document, are that via expert opinion, we still do think that if you need to use, if you need to use vancomycin, that having it as an additional drug is a better approach. And one of the rationales there is that if you use vancomycin, you just have no gram-negative coverage whatsoever. Put that on top of the idea that vancomycin compared to cefazolin is actually inferior for MSSA, and MSSA is now our most common cause of surgical site infection overall. So again, there, there are some you know, things to sort through there. 
but in general, we would say that in my own opinion here, and I we try and couch it as opinion when we make mention of it in the document, is that having it as an addition to a beta-lactam backbone would be the best way to use vancomycin if you really need to use it at all. Another big change I saw in terms of being explicit with antimicrobial recommendations was highlighting the importance of oral plus IV antimicrobials in colorectal surgery. Um, and I'm curious, you know, was this just felt to be an area that was underappreciated, one that the data was showing people weren't implementing as regularly, or was there yeah. some new compelling data that rose this to the level of essential? It's a really good question, and, and it is a little bit of all those things, to be perfectly honest. You know, even back in 2014, we had randomized controlled trials supporting the need for oral antibiotics as part of the bowel regimen, but there was still a little bit of controversy in that, you know, what about just mechanical bowel prep alone? What about the combination of mechanical bowel prep and oral antibiotics? And some faint whisper of, of safety concerns about increased risk of anastomotic leak if you use one or part of these different regimens. And so what I think we've had over the last you know, eight, nine years in the data we were updating here is a lot of those potential concerns have been clarified. With ongoing trials in this space, we do now definitively believe that combining oral antibiotics with your mechanical bowel prep is a safe and effective strategy to decrease risks of surgical site infection that is not associated with an increased risk of anastomotic leak or other types of harm. And so again, they're like, like I was saying before, the upwards of you know two different meta-analyses with 40 to 50 in randomized control trial, just about as big as you're gonna find in any one particular part of, of SSI prevention literature. And so, you know, that was important, but as important, you, you nailed it. When we actually look at how often people do it, it's shockingly little. It's, it's not a common practice. It's certainly when we do our investigations in our community hospitals, we bear that out. And that's concerning because, again, this is a now, I think, highly evidence-based practice but one that for whatever reason, we have just not yet cracked the code between high levels of evidence and how to actually get it done for our individual patients. I found that as I was looking through some of these, I'm imagining there's, there are some things we can really just take full control of as the patients are here with us in the hospital yeah. immediately before surgery. And there's all these other things that take a little bit more advanced notice and right. the patient get, uh, participating really in a, in a major way. Um, and I imagine there's a bit difference that you're going to see in those types of interventions. I think that's fair. Yes. <laughs> on, on, to, on that note, uh, you know, another space that really jumped out to me as a, as a change and something that was being highlighted was something you've already mentioned a couple times before, and that was the upgrade of decolonization to an essential practice. You know, the key caveat there um, that you've highlighted a couple times is that that benefit is really seen specifically in cardiothoracic and orthopedic procedures but less so in others. And so getting kind of to this implementation question, I am curious as to your thoughts, and as you, especially as you were thinking about how to frame these recommendations, because I imagine there's a real push-pull there of if you make a process that's systematic and you're putting across uh, preoperative procedures, you can, might be able to get some higher adherence to that recommendation and make yeah. the colonization happen uh, than if you really just try to focus on one type of procedure but there may not be as much evidence for that. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious to shed light on kind of how you were making those delineations when you were coming up with the recommendation. Yeah, it, it definitely, uh, another, this was definitely another one of those topics that, that led to a lot of different conversations 
a lot of back and forth amongst the panel. And as we engage some of the, the expert review panels as well from the various societies, a lot of really strong opinions in this space, <laughs> I think is fair to say. Um, and, you know, I would have to kind of add a caveat to the beginning of my answer is that there is no one way to pull this off and have it be the best way to do it. So every strategy we can come up with has some good things and some bad things about it that, you know, some parts of it that may not be quite as good as we might like. And so with that caveat, you know, step one in the guideline like this was to say, we think you should do this. But step two of that is, here are some ways you can potentially do it, but I can't sit here in front of you and tell you the best way. I really can't. Um, now, to put a few things out there for, for listeners to think through, you know, for the longest time, the approach has definitely been seek and destroy. Let's screen patients. Let's find them. It, once they're positive, we're going to have a protocol that we're going to then decolonize them before their surgical procedure. And that has merits in that we're not overusing potential antibiotics like mupirocin. We really can focus it on people we know to be positive. But what we have found over time is that so many of those screening tests are only focused on MRSA. And frankly, we're to the point now where any strategy like this, we're trying to prevent both MRSA and MSSA. So any screening that's just focusing on MRSA as a seek and destroy strategy is missing you know, more than half the boat when it comes to preventing staph aureus surgical site infection. The other thing we've encountered is when it comes to any strategy, whether it's seek and destroy versus do it to everybody, is mupirocin is an antimicrobial agent. Staph and other organisms can develop resistance to it. And there's some controversy in the space about what does it really mean to have this, you know, MUPA gene that gives supposedly it confers some amount of resistance but it's concerning that something like that is there, and certainly everything we otherwise know about the development of resistance implies that that's a bad thing, and that it's going to then decrease our ability to use something like mupirocin, which at this moment is about the only agent we have out there for topical use and, and intranasal use against mupir against uh, MRSA. Excuse me. And so the idea of considering other potential agents has definitely been put forward. And, and we have quite a bit of discussion about some of those alternatives. Um, when you shake it all out, I think, and you focus purely on the data, the data that have been published to this point have focused typically on seek and destroy and then using mupirocin and chlorhexidine. So that's where the majority of our data lie that lead to the recommendation that we now have here. So if you are hardcore, I am only going to do what the evidence says I should do, then that's your answer. That's the strategy with the one twist that don't just screen for MRSA, also screen for MSSA. But not everybody necessarily feels so beholden to the absolute letter of the law and, and instead can consider some notions related to the spirit of the law when it comes to you know, we may not, the screening we do is not perfect. We are going to miss people that have colonization if all about a quarter of the time, if all we do is screen their nares. Maybe there's some value in decolonizing anybody or everybody that has one of these procedures scheduled. Well, again, that means you might use a lot of mupirocin. And so these alternative agents have now kind of risen and are becoming more popular. So the use of intranasal povidone iodine in particular and there are, I believe, three studies out there that say, you know what, you can do some good with this type of intervention, 
is it the same level of data that's out there for Mupirison? No. And you'd have to acknowledge that. We also would acknowledge that Mupirison leads to a more a longer amount of decolonization. The, the counter to that is, well, maybe that doesn't matter. Well, all we really want to do is make sure that surgical procedure, if we're good, we've reduced the amount of staff present, then that's what we're trying to achieve. But with each of those kind of changes in our approach, you certainly have to acknowledge that you're getting into some spaces where there's not as much data to support it. Maybe the last note to, to add here, because I, I realize I'm getting a little long-winded here, is the idea of universal approaches, again, while not necessarily studied in trials, has been looked at in modeling and does seem to be not only effective, but cost-effective if you take that approach, because you're eliminating screening tests, you're eliminating personnel time when it comes to who's going to respond to it and contact people. And if you kind of put a different, those different, a few different additional variables like that into your equation and just purely look at effectiveness and cost, then it actually can be a pretty reasonable strategy to use. As a quick note, last note here at Duke, for example, we have moved to the uh, use of povidone iodine. It actually speaks to the point you were raising before. We've actually done some of our own studies where if we send people home with chlorhexidine and expect them to use it, we get so many different uh, levels of chlorhexidine on skin. We can give them all the same instructions, and it, it's the huge bell-shaped curve of, of what you get when we actually then measure the amount of chlorhexidine on patient's skin. So if we try and take better control of this part of the process, and you know, hit people with the povidone iodine two to three times while they're here in our uh, charge, then we feel like we have a likely to get a better outcome because we're now then in control of that process and can make sure that it happens to the patients. Lots of really exciting. I could go on. No, yeah. lots of really exciting <laughs> potential strategies, there, right? And, and I think I think it gets to that implementation yeah. question that we brought up at the beginning, right? Like not every method is going to be right for your institution and what you have available for the amount of resources that you have. And I think it's important to look at this document as really essential things that you can do to better the care of your patients, um, but understanding that there's multiple right ways to achieve each of these goals right. and it needs to be adapted to what's happening locally for you. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's very helpful just to go through you know, with just one example, how many ways you can still do it right. Yeah, that's fair. Um, you know, so we've talked about a ton of really important things today in terms of bowel prep, antimicrobial, uh, antimicrobial prophylaxis, decolonization. This really kind of gets to the idea of you're never going to fix this problem with just one thing. Yeah. You need a bundle. It needs to be this multifaceted mm. approach. And, you know, part of the way things are reorganized in this update was kind of making that point explicit. You know, yeah. perhaps 2014, that was more when we were all obsessed with checklists as being the panacea to fix all of these things, but recognizing that it's not always just the checklist, it's everything else that's going into forming these bundles. And so uh, you mentioned uh, in this paper that one of the key limitations is knowing what are those mm -hmm. essential parts of a bundle. Often when we're studying these interventions to try to reduce surgical site infections is often you're getting a lot of people focused on you, getting a bunch of people involved. It's not just yeah. one piece. And so when you're thinking about crafting a bundle, if you're about to do an intervention, what do you think are some, some of the key components to make for that successful intervention? Uh, yes, I, I, I think you summarized it well, how we kind of moved from our, our recommendation in 2014 to, to now. 
Um, even with, you know, nine to 10 years, you, you are absolutely right that I don't have, nobody has yet published on the bundle we're supposed to use. Um, and, you know, that's probably fair because if you could envision there may be differences from one procedure type to the next, you know, types of individual patients that may require different considerations. Um, now, with that said, you know, I think there are, however, a handful of basic components in a bundle that makes sense. And I think some of the key ones that come up are the, was the key ones, you know, back even the one we quote in the, the compendium itself in the WHO checklist was related to which prophylactic agent are we using, uh, but not only which one do we use, do we use it at the right time and at the right dose? I think our skin prep, the use of the correct skin prep is, again, back to the data we have from our community hospitals, even to this day, is still surprising to me how often we don't get it right for something that really feels like it should be pretty basic and simple. So skin prep, antimicrobial agent, for various types of procedures, you can layer in things like normothermia. That's difficult to actually monitor, and there are some issues like, is it preoperative versus intraoperative? And so maybe that one doesn't find its way into every single one, but I think it would be a part of a lot. So skin prep, antimicrobial agent. I think to this point, the use of screening for hyperglycemia afterwards is a really important part of any bundle because one of the key, rec key components of our recommendation in this version of the compendium is that this is relevant for all surgical patients, not just for those who have diabetes. And in the past, I'd say, certainly this is through our experiences and a handful of published data, is that most people only really think about that when they're thinking about patients that have diabetes. And so I think if you get through those core recommendations, knowing there are many others, you can potentially layer in there as well. And an example might be in colons, where we talked about the bowel prep, but then the uh, you know recommended practice by ACS is to change the closing equipment. So you're not using the same uh, you know, sutures and suture drivers and gloves when you're mucking around in the gut as you do when you're closing the skin. And so that, that, that's not evidence-based per se, but makes sense that you would include some kind of change like that for your contaminated or clean contaminated types of procedures. And so I think Again, with the, the notion that there can be some others, depending on what types of procedures you're doing, I think those are some of the key things that if I were building a bundle, I would have as the foundation for my SSI bundle. Uh, well, this has been a fantastic conversation, a lot for people to chew on. Um, and as a, we come to the end of our conversation, I was hoping to wrap up with a bit of a call to action for our listeners. You mentioned, and it's come up several times, still a lot of areas where we just don't have the trials, we don't have the data. And that's a big thing of what we do here with Dason and Daikon is we utilize this network to try to answer these yeah. critical questions to better the care of our patients. And so, you know, where do you think are some of the next areas with greatest need for more data? That is to say, you know, what kind of projects are we hoping to partner <laughs> up with our sites to look at in the future? Wow, I could go on and on uh, on that particular uh, question. <laughs> you know, I think uh, when we combine uh, DICON and DASON resources, in particular for prevention of SSI, uh, I think that lends itself to the perfect opportunity to better examine 
our antimicrobial prophylaxis practices and probably even loop in some of our decolonization approaches. Maybe a third layer to that, and one we haven't gotten into in, in great detail in our, our discussion so far, is the agents used for wound lavage. I think those are examples where there is a combination of input from IPs and infection prevention side and pharmacists on the antimicrobial stewardship side. And I think there are opportunities in every single one of those three areas we just talked about. Is it you know, how best to implement the colon bundles and we, as the colon uh, antimicrobial prophylaxis and oral antibiotics. Again, even just the simple thing of choice of antibiotic is something we should do 100% of the time and we don't. So why? Why are we falling down? And what is at this, you know, working in this area for 15 years at this point has continued to be an area of emphasis and yet we still don't get it right 100% of the time. I think we're going to get a lot of discussion related to decolonization, maybe, and hopefully prompted by the recommendations in the document. And, you know, I imagine that's going to lend itself to some natural experiments about what happens when we implement different strategies of decolonizing individuals that fall into the, these different categories. And so no shortage of opportunities. If I were to give, you know, one kind of push um, as we've talked about a few times at this point, I am much more interested in how to better implement what we know we should be doing than necessarily finding the latest and greatest, uh, you know, newest mousetrap that's going to solve all our problems here. I'm not sure that would exist, right? Absolutely. Um, well, thank you for such a robust and stimulating conversation, Dr. Anderson. I'm sure this will not be our last and we'll be finding ways <laughs> to claw you back all right. to the show before Sounds too good. long. Um, but to everyone out there listening, uh, to all of our partner JSON sites, if you're interested in doing something about your antimicrobial prophylaxis for, uh, preoperatively, if you are interested in uh, working at your institution to think about how to best optimize one of these bundles that you may already have or be implementing a new one, please feel free and we encourage you to reach out to your JSON liaison um, to your, your DICON representatives um, and help us help you um, do everything we can for our patients and hopefully along the way measure what happens and yeah. figure how to spread the love with that new knowledge. <laughs> um, so all right thanks again and until next time everyone. Cheers. Thank you.